Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmore Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your guest host, Lydia Padfield, a Church of England ordinant and PhD student at Cranmore Hall. If you enjoy Talking Theology, do subscribe at your favourite podcast provider, follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Talking Theo, or share on social media. Thank you for listening. Now, on to today's episode. What's striking about the Apostle Paul and the stories he shared? What was first century Corinth really like? And what was the real problem with the Corinthian church? How was the cross the content of Paul's preaching, but also the pattern of his living? And how might Paul's cross-shaped narratives about himself affect the way we tell our stories today? Welcome to this episode of Talking Theology. In today's show, I will be talking to Reverend Canon Dr. Philip Pimming. Philip is Warden of Cranmer Hall as well, of course, as the host of Talking Theology. His new book, Being Real, The Apostle Paul's Hardship Narratives and the Stories We Tell Today, is being released later this year. And our title today is, Why Did Paul Tell Stories of His Own Hardship? And What Does That Mean for Us Today? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Philip Fleming, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you, Lydia. It's very good to be here on the other side of the microphone for the first time. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes, Philip, our listeners know you as the host of Talking Theology, but in your day job, you're Warden of Cranmer Hall. Could you tell us a bit about what that entails and how you got there? Well, how I got there, first of all, kind of Lydia, I trained at Cranmer Hall back at the end of the 1990s. And then I was in local church leadership for 16 years, during which I, um, I also did a PhD. And when I was a, a vicar, I did quite a lot of training of curates and uh, ordinands, people sort of training for church leadership. And after 16 years, I kind of felt I had something to give back. And so I felt I wanted to be part of training people for local church leadership. Plus, we always said that after we'd lived in Durham for three years, if the Lord called us back to the northeast, he wouldn't have to shout very loud. So we were really glad to have the opportunity to come back six years ago. My role involves overseeing the life of the theological college. So uh, particularly in terms of leading the staff team, leading the community. I teach uh, New Testament and leadership. I supervise and I engage with kind of wider church bodies on, on behalf of Cranmer Hall. So it's a really varied role. No day's the same. And I I love the variety of it all. Now, today we're going to be talking about your upcoming book, which is looking at the Apostle Paul's hardship narratives in 1 and 2 Corinthians and the sorts of stories that we as Christians tell. Could you tell us how you first became interested in this area? What first drew you to Paul and in particular these passages? I came to a living faith in, in 1992 in my first year at university and... I then came to train here at Cranmer Hall, as I said, and I remember one of my placements or one of involved kind of going to look at various kind of Christian media organisations. And I went to see a Christian TV station. I remember looking around there for the day and seeing this enormous gap between the image of how this TV station presented and the substance of what was going on behind the scenes. It was all kind of glitz on the surface, but fairly messy behind the scenes, if I'm honest with you. And this was a time about kind of new labour was in power. And there was this thing that was all the rage called spin. So spin was about making things looking good, you know, spinning everything. So it's got a positive image, regardless of how bad the news is. And it just struck me as I spent time with Christians and various Christian organisations, I thought, we're just behaving like the spin doctors in the wider society, constantly trying to put a positive gloss on things. And it just felt 
a bit dishonest and a bit wrong. And particularly as I read my Bible day by day, I noticed that Paul didn't do this. And that really intrigued me. He didn't seem to put a positive gloss on things. He was pretty honest about when life was tough. And that intrigued me. And so I did a little bit of work when I was training here at Cranmer. I think I wrote a dissertation called And Neither Do They Spin, which is a bit taking Matthew 6 out of context. But it was looking at why shouldn't Christians engage in a spin culture? That's how where it first came from. Fantastic. So you acknowledge that not everyone has an easy relationship with the Apostle Paul, but you suggest that you admire him because in his writings you encounter a real person. Could you tell us a bit more about what you mean by that? People view Paul through particular lenses and those lenses really determine how they see him. So theologians see Paul the theologian and they either love or hate the sort of clarity and verbosity and depth and complexity with which he writes. Some people sort of struggle with Paul because he writes really difficult things. Some people can see him as a hero, that he can do nothing wrong. What I admire and notice about Paul is that he is complex he's struggling and he's suffering and he therefore comes across as somebody who I can relate to where he's wrestling with what it is to follow Christ rather than having everything worked out and he's honest about his struggles and that I find pretty inspiring particularly when you place it against his first century context where generally that wasn't the norm and I found that really something that I was intrigued by and wanted to explore further. Could you tell us a little bit about that context? Maybe set the scene for first century Corinth before we get into the complexity of Paul. Mm. Corinth was in a, a fantastic place in the middle of the first century. We kind of think, Lydia, that when we are dealing with all the ancient cities of the Bible, they're all much of a muchness, you know, and they're, they're all old, you know, and in terms of from today, they are all old, but they weren't all old then. And Corinth was a kind of new city. I mean, it had been founded, it had been settled by the Greeks it's before, but it had been raised to the ground, I think, at about 146 BC, and it had kind of been rebuilt. I think it was one of Julius Caesar's last acts before he was done to death, that he kind of replanted Corinth as a kind of Roman city. And that was about sort of, say, 50 BC. And for the next 100 years, until Paul knew it and visited, it was just a place of enormous activity. So first century Corinth, it was strategically located. It was on this very narrow peninsula between mainland Greece and what's called the Peloponnese. So it had harbours facing east and west. So it was often easier to take the ships across about three miles across land rather than go all the way around the Peloponnese. So it's strategically located with two harbours. It was economically flourishing. You know, so many goods and services had to go through there. So it was a flourishing economically. It was socially fluid and aspirational. There was a very significant number of ex or former slaves among its number who'd done well and risen up the social ladder. And it was competitive. And I think there's three dimensions to that competitive nature. It was competitive, what you might call reputationally or socially. In other words, people wanted to show how much they'd risen up the social ladder. And there are some wonderful examples of monuments or bits of pavement where people saying, oh, you know, I've done this and I got to this rank and, you know, I've put my sort of achievements in literally in stone. So there was a social pecking order that people wanted to feel they were 
were doing rather well at. There was a physical competition going on. It was the centre, Corinth, for the Isthmian Games, which was second only to the Olympic Games. And so, you, you know, you had these very high-profile games every two years where those who were strongest or fastest achieved the winner's crown, the laurel of the victor. And it was also competitive rhetorically. It was actually a centre for public speaking. That was true of all over the Roman Empire. But it was particularly true because there was this new trend in Corinth in the first century, so we understand, of these speakers who gathered together not simply to sort of make a good argument, but rather to sound impressive, what's called sophistic speakers. And their job was to win disciples and sort of people who then pay to teach them to speak in similarly impressive terms. So Corinth was this wonderful melting pot of strategic location, economically flourishing, socially fluid and competitive, reputationally, physically and rhetorically. And in this place of competition and status, what was the church like? Well, the church in Corinth had its problems. I don't think you have to be a, a New Testament scholar of 20 years standing to work that out. You know, you only have to dip into to one and two Corinthians to find it was a church with some problems. And scholars have kind of scratched their heads over the years with what exactly was the problem of the Corinthian church. And you kind of, there's various good arguments out there. I've always been impressed by the argument which Bruce Winter makes in his book after Paul left Corinth. And he draws attention to 1 Corinthians 3 verse 3 where Paul says you're walking in a secular way. In other words, you know, after Paul had sort of planted the church and they'd seen some fairly rapid growth, because that's what happened. I mean, the church in Corinth was socially diverse. We get that hint from Acts and it grew rapidly in the 18 months Paul was there. But after Paul left, it seems that they tried to live out their Christian faith but still with their Corinthian values, first and foremost. In other words, when they came across a problem in the church, they reached for their Corinthian playbook and said, right, what does it say how to do here? In other words, they were more Corinthian than they were Christian. So to give an example of that, you know, when they came up to conflict in the church, they said, well, what do you do when you get conflict? You take each other to court. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 6. You know, they've got problems with sex and oral morality. Well, the Corinthian playbook was your bodies yourselves. You do whatever you like with them. Or when it came to the problems of the Lord's Supper, you know, well, the idea was, of course, the rich people eat with rich people and the poor eat with poor people. That's what Corinthians do. So there was a sense that the Corinthians were trying to live out their Christian faith, but their values were still shaped by the culture in which they'd been formed. And I think that's the real problem with the Corinthian church. They were more Corinthian than they were Christian. Philip, where might there be echoes of Corinth in our own culture? That's a really good question, Lydia. I mean, it's very easy to look down our noses at the Corinthian church, you know, our prayer that says, you know, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Corinthian, you know. But we're as much influenced by the culture in which we live as the Corinthian church was. And if we think we're not, we are deceiving ourselves and there is no truth in us to use the words of an old prayer. I refer you to a previous podcast guest that we had not long ago, um, Matt Guest, talking about neoliberalism. And I thought that was a brilliant example of the way in which the church is affected by market forces, for example, and how that's impacted the church. So this idea that, you know, the Corinthian church was influenced by culture, but we, of course, have a thoroughly reasoned Christian ethic and aren't going to be affected by culture. I think we probably need to examine that quite carefully. So if the problem with Corinthian Christians is that they were more Corinthian than Christians, if that's the kind of context into which Paul is writing, what would you say is different about the sorts of narratives that he's telling? Well, 
if you think about it, when Paul was writing, and he was writing to a church that was slightly falling out of love with him, they were slightly doubting him and they were you know, not very impressed with him. It's really interesting the stories that he chooses to tell about himself. He had lots of great stories up his sleeve. If you think about the book of Acts, if you read about Paul in Acts, he planted churches and people were healed and shipwrecked and all this sort of stuff. You know, he had to step outside the front door and people became Christians or people got healed. You know, so he had all these stories up his sleeve, but he doesn't tell them to the Corinthian church. I think they'd have loved to hear them. You know, they were thought, oh yeah, well, that's great. That's the sort of apostle we could be proud of. But instead, he tells stories of his own brokenness and of his own suffering and of his own struggle. And he doesn't do it once. He does it again and again and again. He does it once in 1 Corinthians and then at least kind of four or five times in 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is when his identity and authority as an apostle is most at stake. And it's almost like the more he's pressured to prove himself or validate himself, the more he tells stories of his own brokenness. He doesn't tell stories of his the miracles but he tells stories about his own suffering and shame i'll give you an example of that there's the story about his escape from damascus luke tells it in acts as a great story of triumph and escape paul tells it in 2 corinthians 11 as a humiliating escape in a basket through a wall so even when he does tell a story that has the sort of miraculous about it he downplays it and says it was it was shaming And there are a huge amount of examples of that in 1 and 2 Corinthians, and you explore many of them in your book. Would you mind taking us through maybe 1 Corinthians 4 as an example? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 4, that's the first sort of so-called hardship narrative that he explores. And it's a really interesting one because he's contrasting himself with the Corinthian church. And he's saying, you know, you're doing so well and I'm virtually nothing really. And the first thing he does is he uses this really powerful image of a procession. And he says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, as those sentenced to death. And he's got in mind there, I think, a Roman triumphal procession where the Roman general coming back from their great victory brings this wonderful procession through to Rome and all the booty is brought together. And at the end is the prisoners. They're going to end up dead. And Paul says, that's where I am. I'm right at the back of the procession. So he's positioning himself. You're right at the front. Everyone's applauding you. I'm nothing. And then he talks about his own suffering, and it has three dimensions to it. It's physical. He talks about how he's poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. He's hungry and thirsty. It's emotional. He talks about growing weary from the work of his own hands. And it's kind of what you might call reputational or social. He talks about we're reviled, we're persecuted. He said, we've become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things. The word in Greek refers to the things that you scrape off your shoes. Think about what you scraped off your shoes in the ancient world. It wasn't very pretty. Paul says, that's how I am regarded by others. So he says to the Corinthians, you're, you know, you're brilliant, you're already rich, you've arrived. And he says, but I'm, I'm suffering, I'm physically, emotionally and reputationally. He says, that's where I am. I'm last of all in the procession. Everyone's jeering at me, he says. It's also really interesting that Paul isn't just writing all of these hardship narratives retrospectively, as sort of, this was the suffering that I once experienced and... Now I've overcome it. What do you think is the significance in Paul writing in the midst of suffering, not just afterwards? I think it's really key, Lydia, because I think 
he's not writing you're right as if everything's been resolved as if i once had a problem but now everything's all right you know the way in which we can sometimes hear christian testimonies like used to have problems but then i became a christian and i don't have any problems anymore he's deliberately avoiding that sort of narrative by writing in the present and i think he's showing a couple of things there really number one he's making clear to the corinthians that bad stuff happens to faithful people he's saying there's nothing that it's consistent with christian faith life and discipleship that struggles happen and then kind of secondly and developing that point he's saying that suffering is not shaming it's really interesting how often in paul's correspondence he says things like i'm not ashamed of my chains or so-and-so was not ashamed. Because I think if you were suffering in the ancient world, that was a sign that the gods, for example, weren't favouring you. And Paul says, I'm I'm not going to be shamed by my suffering. So he's not going to be silent about his suffering in the moment. He says, this is how I feel now. And I think, therefore, he's suggesting that there's something happening now in the midst of the suffering that gives him hope and confidence. What are the different reasons that scholars have given for these hardship narratives? What are their strengths and weaknesses? What might they be missing? There's been quite an interesting little bit of sort of research around this. The the Germans have got a name for hardship narratives, Lydia, which is Peristasenkataloge, which is rather fun, isn't it? So you can sort of drop that into a dinner party conversation. I've just been listening to a podcast about Peristasenkataloge and watch people leave immediately. And there's been a kind of number of ideas mooted about why Paul might do this again and again. One, one idea is that he was trying to copy the cynic or stoic philosophers of the age who quite often sort of validate their philosophical authority by saying look how much I've suffered in the midst of that the only thing is that he frames his own suffering in quite different terms particularly in Christological terms I don't think that's a sufficient account of why he does that and and it doesn't explain well the cynic stoics weren't going to impress the Corinthians very much (laughs) You know, they, they didn't want that. So I don't think it, that's that's on its own is sufficient. The second idea is that he was doing it as a kind of power play. In other words, trying to make the Corinthians feel sorry for him. I'm not sure that's convincing because they didn't feel sorry for him. They felt shamed by him. So I think he knew enough about the Corinthian context to know that wasn't going to work. The third idea is, you might call it the Eeyore idea, which is that he just basically can't stop himself. You know, he just can't stop telling people how miserable he is. Like the person who sort of, you know, you meet them on a beautiful day and you say, isn't it lovely? And they say, yeah, I'm going to get sunburnt today. You know, they just literally can't find anything positive to say. And that makes Paul into a bit of a sort of gloomy figure, which doesn't bear witness to the joy that he evidences. I think the real problem with all of these approaches, they make Paul into a very passive or derivative thinker as if he's simply modeling or patterning himself on others and i think however you understand paul he was clearly this extraordinary original capable theologian so i think it's at least worth probing what might be a theological rationale for paul writing as he did let's at least test the idea that he's doing this for theological reasons and explore where that idea might take us It's interesting you use the word patterning, because in your book, you suggest that Paul's hardship narratives are patterned on the cross. You suggest the cross is not just an event that happened to Jesus, but it's a framework for how Paul both saw and lived his life. How do you think this makes better sense of Paul's hardship narratives? I think that's really the key question, Lydia, because 
What I think is key to understanding Paul's theological worldview, particularly in the Corinthian correspondence, is to see the way in which the cross is not only the content of the message, but also the pattern of the messenger. And to give you a really good example, 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 to 5 is Paul reminding the Corinthians about how he came to preach to them. And he said, when I came, I resolved to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. And he said, I came to you not with strength, but with weakness and trembling. And what he's saying there is he said, not only did I preach the cross, but I patterned the cross in how I preached. In other words, I wasn't as impressive as all these wonderful, sophistic speakers. I was actually quite weak. And it was the power of God in my weakness that led people to come to faith. That's the power of the Holy Spirit that he references in those verses. And he does that in a number of other places. He says to the Corinthians, you know, look at yourselves at the back end of 1 Corinthians 1. He says, not many of you are rich, not many of you are of noble birth. It's almost like he says, but God chose what is weak to shame the strong. He's almost saying, well, the church is patterned on the cross as well. Just look around the room. So I think we're getting this hint that for Paul, the cross is not only the content of his message, it's how he believed God at work in the world. Um, to go back to another previous guest on Talking Theology, um, Michael Gorman and his book Cruciformity, if you remember the interview said that we see Paul believing that God works in a cross-shaped way. And that, I think, is the key to understanding these narratives, because these are cross-shaped narratives. They are patterned on the cross. And what Paul is trying to do is trying to show the Corinthians that God is still at work in cross-shaped places. In other words, it wasn't just that cross on the hill in Jerusalem in 33 AD that God was at work. God continues to be at work in similarly cross-shaped places not only in Paul's preaching, not only in the church, but also in the suffering and the hardship that goes with it. And if God is working in cross-shaped ways, where does the resurrection fit in that account? For Paul, the resurrection has a huge significance, not only for how we understand the salvation work of Jesus, but also how we can understand the continuing work of God in the world. If you remember Michael Gorman, he talks about the cross is the pattern for God at work in the world, but the resurrection is the power. So when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, it wasn't only that power that was at work in Jesus, but a power released in the heart of every believer. So when we see God's life in the midst of struggle, that's resurrection life that we see. When we see God's joy in the midst of hardship, that's resurrection joy. The resurrection is providing the power to keep going, to keep hoping, to keep believing, to keep trusting. There's that wonderful image in in Michael Gorman's book when he says, we sometimes think that the good place to do theology is Holy Saturday, that middle Saturday, you know, after Good Friday, before Easter Sunday. And Michael Gorman says something very different. He says, actually, he says, the best place to do theology is from Good Friday and Easter Sunday at the same time. And it's almost like for the believer... We're called to inhabit both places. We're called to inhabit Good Friday because God is at work in cross-shaped places. And we're called to inhabit Easter Sunday because it's God's resurrection power that's exactly at work in those places. So we're Good Friday and Easter Sunday people all the time. And if that's the place from which we should be doing theology, what would you say the significance of this cross-shaped pattern is for the stories that we tell as the church and as individuals? 
Well, that's a great question because the reality is we are all telling stories about ourselves. When I did my PhD research on which this book is based, there were kind of specialists in the church who were handling news. They were kind of called news managers and they were paid to work out of diocese or church house or, you know what I mean, Christian organisations. Whereas in the sort of 20 years or so, that the picture of how we share stories has changed completely because social media means that we're sharing stories about ourselves all the time. And social media is based on us telling stories. Somebody wrote, said, we're all our own news managers now. And there is a real pressure to tell good stories about ourselves. Donna Freitas has written a brilliant book called The Happiness Effect and talks about the way in which social media is driving people to tell stories that make them look good and appear happy. And it's a brilliant bit of research that talks about the pressure. She talks about every social media feed has got to be like your highlights reel. And so she tells a great story about people going to a baseball match and they spent an hour before the baseball match desperately trying to get a group photo of everyone looking really happy. And she said by the end of an hour of everyone trying to look happy at exactly the same time, they were incredibly stressed. But the pressure to create the perfect image, the perfect story is all there. And Christians are swimming in that culture. And just as I said earlier, the Corinthians were sometimes more Corinthian than they were Christian. I think Christians are under real pressure to tell great stories about ourselves. And we partly think we're glorifying God by doing that. Because hang on, God's a God who answers prayer. God's a God who makes things happen. So if I'm telling great stories, that's glorifying to God. And I think the significant challenge of this pattern that Paul holds out to us is that it encourages us to tell stories which include things that are often omitted. It invites us to tell stories that include things that we might think of as bad news, stories of our own weakness, stories of our own dependence on others rather than our self-sufficiency, stories which perhaps don't give us a great reputation, stories which perhaps aren't encouraging but because everything's going well but are encouraging because perhaps things are really a real real struggle but Jesus is still lord and we're keeping going so i think the challenge of this pattern says let's not collude with a culture that says we're glorifying god simply by telling the positive stories all the time and i know you talk about something called the shared story of the cross and say that we can be co-tellers of that story what would that look like Yeah, there's this really interesting idea called shared stories, which is the idea that within social media and other contexts, we're kind of sharing in stories together and we're telling those stories together. So shared stories are stories told by more than one person. I think as Christians, we're invited to be telling the story of the cross-shaped work of God at the same time. And what does that look like? I think, number one, it's being attentive to God at work in surprising places. In other words, looking out for God being at work in the person who hasn't yet been healed or the person who's living with long-term depression but keeping going in a really faithful way. It means being attentive to God at work in surprising places. It also means being honest about our experience of the Christian life and being honest that the Christian life isn't waltzing from one glory to another, but is actually times of real struggle and real hardship. And I think if we are honest about some of the struggles But God at work in those struggles, not rubbing them away, but at work, nevertheless, in the midst of them, we'll be telling the story of the cross-shaped work of God. Thank you. Do you think there are any risks in this approach? 
Yes, I do think there are some risks we need to be attentive to. And one of the risks is kind of oversharing or sharing in a way that leaves you very vulnerable. So I do think we need to be wise about the stories we share where we do it and how we do it, we can actually share stories in a way that's actually quite manipulative. And if we're not understanding questions of boundaries and how we protect ourselves and others, you know, the stories can be deeply manipulative for others and also vulnerable for ourselves. So I think we need to not try and share everything all the time. We don't have to do that as Christians. The other risk is that people might think a little bit worse of us as a result. I remember sort of what I was preaching once and I, I don't sleep very well. Well, quite a bit of the time, actually. And I wake up and look at the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning. And I mentioned that in a sermon, not by way of confessing it, but just saying that's sometimes what it looks like for me. And I remember sort of one person coming up to me after the sermon saying, oh, oh, how disappointing. And I felt this real kind of crushing shame that if I was a proper vicar, I'd sleep, you know, eight hours a night and I'd just commit myself to the Lord and he'd see me and like, oh, sorry. And, and so I think you need to be brave and ready for a range of responses because sometimes people project things onto you that you should be omnipotent and superman or superwoman and therefore that's one of the risks is people might think a bit less of you but that's just the reality now philip we've talked about paul and the stories he was telling in a status-driven corinthian culture and the sorts of stories that we can tell as the church could we move this to you and your faith how has this affected your life and journey of faith it's really shaped me, I think, ever since I did the research kind of 20 years ago and the leadership that I've offered. I've tried to be, I've tried to encourage to speak differently about some of the things I've struggled. So, for example, I talk very deliberately here in college about the counselling I've had. When the teams I lead, I've been happy to cry in front of them. I don't pretend I find things easy all the time. I had a really difficult bit a couple of summers ago and I actually told the community about it here at Cranmer just because I thought I owe it to them to be honest about that. So I've tried to be honest that I don't find things easy all the time, but I'm not shamed by that. And I've experienced God's compassion and kindness in precisely those places. I know more of God's compassion than I did 20 years ago. And I know that in my places of my own suffering and hardship. And the other thing is, it's just made me sensitive and attentive to God at work in surprising places, and prepared to sit with that hardship a bit more rather than thinking that God's job is to take it away both in my own life and in others and I think I believe that God can be at work in more situations than I used to believe and that makes me really hopeful. Thank you very much for all that you shared of Paul and of your own life. Philip Plimming thank you so much for appearing on Talking Theology. Thank you Lydia it's been good to talk. You have been listening to Talking Theology a podcast from Cranmahal Durham. Cranmer Hall is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmerhall.com.